Welcome back to Behind the Wings, a podcast produced by Wings Over the Rockies Air and Space Museum in Denver, Colorado. We've got a lot to explore. Stories about how history shapes aviation today, trailblazers in space, and up-close looks at iconic aircraft of the past and present. It's time to go Behind the Wings. Can you believe it? It's episode 16, folks, and we have reached cruising speed and are so glad to have you along for the ride. Wait a minute. I'm the pilot. I should say that part. You know, we've reached cruising speed and are so glad to have you along for the ride. There you go. That's the way you say that, Rick. Come on. All right. All right. Fair enough. Make sure you subscribe in your favorite podcast app, maybe where you're listening right now. And hey, if you like the show, give us a rating. It helps a lot. And we really do appreciate it. I see here one person wrote on Apple Podcasts for aviation history buffs. This podcast is a treasure. They said that. That's wonderful. They even say that we draw fascinating stories and historical insights from their knowledgeable guests. And we really do try to do that to get those amazing stories from each and every one of our guests. Fascinating stories and insights. Man, that's a lot to live up to. A lot of pressure here. We'll do our best. And, and today's show may live up to the hype. We really do have a cool story today. We're uncovering a historic heartwarming and heroic story. I, I can't wait to get in this one. Hey, everybody, I'm your host, Rick Crandall. With me, as always, is Wings Over the Rockies president and CEO, John Barry. John, what do we have for folks today? Well, Rick, this is a heartwarming story. Uh, we will get into many topics today, all connecting back to one long lost helmet belonging to an F-105 pilot who went down during the Vietnam War, was shot down and was rescued. The helmet belonged to a retired Colonel, James Randall. Now, he's the central figure on our story today, and over the course of today's show, you will meet the unlikely cast of characters who came together from around the world to reunite Randall with a piece of his past. Colonel Randall was a proud member of the Tuskegee Airmen, who were some of the first black aviators in U.S. military, and helped make history to desegregate the U.S. Armed Forces in 1948. Randall served 36 years in the U.S. Air Force, in fact, both on active duty and in the reserves, from joining the Army Air Corps in 1945 to flying 75 combat missions in the Korean War and 44 in the Vietnam War. Colonel Randall was a recipient of the Legion of Merit and the Purple Heart. His career as a fighter pilot, his story... They're both nothing short of remarkable. There's a lot going on in this episode, so stick with us. This one is going to be cool. So let's get started. S.E. Randall, Roberta Rollins, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Of course, we have been looking forward to this one for a while to learn more about Colonel James Randall and that mysterious call that you received, Essie, that, that reunited Colonel Randall with a piece of his past. And later we're going to dive into the story of this long lost helmet and how you re were reunited with it. But uh, first, let's start with the two of you. Can you introduce yourselves, your connection to Colonel Randall and, and how do you fit into this story? I'm Essie Randall, Colonel Randall's wife. We met in the Philippines. I, I was working in civil service, and of course he was in the Air Force. And I certainly was not looking for a husband. I was enjoying my work and traveling. And it just happened. <laughs> and I have no regrets, Roberta. 
My name is Roberta Rollins, Roberta Lynn Randall Rollins. Colonel Randall is my father. We were in Wichita when he was shot down and lost his helmet. And I remember the very day that he was shot down. Well, that's a great start. You know, the impressions of a child on a very traumatic day, but with good results in the end. Well, Colonel Randall, as, uh, as we know, passed away in 2019 at the age of 93 after an incredible life. Uh, he can't be here to introduce himself, obviously, but uh, help us introduce uh, James Randall from your perspective, a fighter pilot, as a Tuskegee Airman, as a husband, and as a father. As a father, I didn't know much about my dad's accolades. He was just daddy to me. He would go to work in his little blue uniform, and he would come home, and we always had dinner together. I have three siblings, and so there were six of us every single night at the dinner table, and he was just daddy to us. He says, okay, so how was school? And we tell him how school was. We didn't know anything about any of his accolades. We didn't know anything that he was doing because a lot of times he went from coming home to not coming home for two or three days because he was on a secret mission. He didn't tell us anything because he couldn't. He just was daddy and he was a good dad. And I didn't find out about any of his accolades until I became an adult because he never, he was humbled. He never came home and talked about it. Essie, tell me about your first impressions of meeting this man. He was the type of person he didn't have to ask for respect. But by the way he carried himself, he got respect and always demanded respect for me. When he was with his friends, there were never any swear words around because all he said was, my wife is present, and everybody fell in line. <laughs> and that, that was very impressive to me. Did he share with you stories of his time as a fighter pilot, as a Tuskegee Airman? What, did he freely share that with you? He told me that that he had attended uh, Tuskegee. It was at that time Tuskegee Institute. And he told me about how he had been accepted to go into a class, you know, for, for flight instructions. And then the war ended, World War II, not knowing that he would ever have that opportunity again because he really wanted to be a pilot, even as a child. And his dream came true. Wow, his dream did come true all right, didn't it? You know, it's so interesting to think back to that time in the 50s and what it meant to be a Tuskegee Airman. Really, they were trailblazers. For some context, as we move forward in our story, we'll hear from Wings Over the Rockies curator Chuck Stout for some background on the Tuskegee Airmen. The Tuskegee Airmen were an experiment by the U.S. Army Air Corps to determine whether black pilots could handle military flying. It turns out they could, but the Tuskegee Airmen fought a second battle, one against racial discrimination. Successful applicants for the Tuskegee experiment had to have at least two years of college, and most were already licensed civilian pilots at a time when the Air Corps was teaching white teenagers to fly right out of high school. With an impressive combat record and war accomplishments, 
The success of the Tuskegee Airmen helped influence then-President Harry Truman's decision to desegregate the armed forces in 1948. 15.08. <clears throat> I asked the Congress for a civil rights bill, and I uh, demanded the integration of the armed forces. The United States Congress decided that we should try and see if, if it was true that black people could not fly. From the beginning, the experiment was set up so that the Tuskegee experiment would fail. In 1925, there had been a study published that stated that black people were incapable of being combat pilots. They couldn't fly airplanes, they didn't have the strength of character to be combat pilots under stress and pressure. And the Tuskegee experiment was basically to find out if that was true. They succeeded beyond everybody's expectations but it still didn't have a lot of support. And then First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt came and visited the uh, Tuskegee airfield, and she flew with a, a black instructor pilot, Chief Anderson. And when they landed, she said, looks like black pilots can fly all right to me. So after the endorsement of the First Lady, the Tuskegee Airmen started gaining some traction. By the end of the war, they had trained almost a thousand people. Thanks, Chuck. That's a good way to put it, that the Tuskegee Airmen fought two battles, one abroad and second at home against racial discrimination. They became a symbol of hope and inspiration for African Americans and the civil rights movement. Now back to Roberta. Roberta, you might be able to help me with this one. Your dad and yourself even, as a student at the time, were involved in a lawsuit, right? The lawsuit... My dad was head of what they now call the Shaw 14. That was in Sumter, South Carolina. It had nothing to do with his flying. It had to do with segregation. We were transferred to Sumter, South Carolina in the early 60s. And the school that they had on Shaw Air Force Base was for the military students. We were not allowed to go to that school, even though we were military students, because we were African-Americans. So we were bused downtown to, for lack of a term, a horrific school in Sumter. And that's where the black students had to go, even though we were military. So my dad did not like that and there was 14 people involved in the lawsuit because some of their children weren't able to go to the military school. So that's why the name, the Shaw 14. When we walked out the door of our house in Sumter, South Carolina, we could just see the school right over there on the other side of the fence. We could see the school, but we weren't allowed to go because we were African-Americans. My dad's lawsuit had a big hand in changing the uh, segregation laws for in Sumter. And from that point on, the schools in Sumter were integrated. In 1963, on September 14th, the Randalls, along with 13 other African-American families signed to Shaw Air Force Base, took a stand against school segregation in their district. They filed a federal suit nine years after the landmark Supreme Court case of Brown v. Board of Education. These 
brave families came to be known as the Shaw 14th. Wow, impressive. You know, Colonel Randall, as uh, we know now, and uh, as having studied the story that you all lived, uh, got a start in the Army Corps in 1945. That was two years before the U.S. Air Force was even formed in 1947. He was commissioned as an officer in 1950. He was a flight instructor. He flew 75 combat missions in the Korean War, flying F-51s. And then in Vietnam, he flew an additional 44 missions before being shot down in an F-105 over North Vietnam. Wow. He's flying his 44th mission in Vietnam when, when he and another crew member were shot down over North Vietnam. In, in speaking of that incident, he said, I retained my helmet. Most people, when they eject from those airplanes, lose their helmets. And after parachuting down, he saw the enemy nearby and said, I could hear these voices getting closer, so I stopped. And there was a flat area next to the side of the hill, and I was lying there, and I had my head turned. I looked down, and I saw them collect my helmet, my survival kit, parachute. After they had everything together, they started going in the direction where the airplane had crashed. He, uh, of course, later was rescued by helicopter, and it was the last time he would see his helmet for nearly 50 years. So 50 years without that helmet, and yet it still meant a, a great deal to him, didn't it? We were in Wichita when he was shot down and lost his helmet. And I remember the very day that he was shot down. And there were two dressed, uniformed men came to the house and I didn't know what it was about. My mother answered the door and I heard her start crying. So when I heard her cry, I came into the living room and she told me that my dad had been shot down. Roberta, how old were you then? I was in junior high school. I, evidently, the news got all over the neighborhood because people came to the house and, and then they brought food. And I can remember her crying. I can remember her telling me that my dad had been shot down and they were looking for him. And then the next day, two uniformed men dressed in blue came to the house and told my mom that they had found my dad. And that's about all I can remember. Wow. It's given me chills to think back to that day when Colonel Randall went down and lost his helmet. It might sound like the end of the story, right? But really, that's where part two of our story begins. A story of two men, Gary Paco Gregg, or Paco as he is called, and Dominique, who first found Colonel Randall's helmet and began the long process of, who does this belong to? And what the heck do we do with this thing? If you could, introduce yourself and how you fit into this story. I'm Gary Gregg. I'm a former Marine, served in Vietnam during the war. History was made by Colonel Randall, but history could have changed in that moment in time when he was shot down. Colonel Randall's history, it, it's there. But what if Colonel Randolph would have been captured? What if Colonel White Randall would have been listed as missing in action? And the worst thing is, what if Colonel Randall would have been killed? History would have been changed at that moment. But now, the, the helmet, along with the story, he's got an incredible 
incredible story, life story. The history with it will always remain now. Help us up the scene now. When you first found the helmet, you're in Cambodia. First, what are you doing there? And what were you thinking when you first encountered the helmet? Uh, in 2002, I went back. And uh, in 2003, I helped form an NGO, non-government organization, to provide help in, uh, for the mouth yard uh, children. In 2003, I also formed a college scholarship fund uh, to put the kids through school. And uh, as of this date, there's been over 60 of them complete their college degrees. The indigenous people of Vietnam, Cambodia, the Mountain Yard people were our staunchest ally during the Vietnam War. My reason being for going back. Wow, very interesting. Uh, me being a knife collector, I noticed a knife shop down along the riverfront, custom knife shop. So I uh, visited the place, and uh, I'd done subsequent visits there whenever I would get into Phnom Penh. At one of those uh, visits, I met the man that owned it. The, the shop, uh, Dominique Elaware, a Frenchman, and he was a joy to be around because he spoke English. We would go and lunch together, we'd have dinner together and some beers together, and uh, he told me, he said, uh, I've got something I'd like to show you. I said, okay. He said, well, we'll go to my house. So Dominique and I went to his house, and uh, we went in, and up on a shelf, he lifted up, pulled us helmet, dusty white flight helmet off the shelf. And he says, this, I've had this for 20-some years. And he said, it's time for me to move it off my shelf. He said, could you help me find the owner? And I'm looking this helmet over, and I'm seeing a Major Randall across the front. I'm seeing a 562nd Tactical Fighter Squadron emblem on the side, and Jim still has the face mask, the oxygen mask with part of the hose. I'll see what I can do, Dominique. What the short story that I've got about it is that this man was shot down close to Din Bin Phu, 25 miles east of Din Bin Phu. He uh, parachuted and was subsequently rescued by helicopter. I said, well, that's a start. So now you have set off on this quest, this amazing quest to find this lost airman who owns his helmet. At this point, you don't even know if he's alive or not. Uh, how did you track down Colonel James Randall? I have to imagine that was a fairly common name in those days. So tell us the story. I knew this was going to be a very difficult, almost impossible task, because when I done a search, there were 4,337 Jim Randall's. I had no middle initial. I had no city, no state. I'm thinking, this is going to take some patience and perseverance. I don't have a lot to work on. This is impossible. But I uh, proceeded to uh, do some searches through the Air Force archives. Air Force didn't want to talk. But anyway, I've got a fishing trip planned for Colorado Springs. And I thought, I'm going to put an ad in the locator list of the Vietnam Veterans of America publication. So I put an ad in there under the locator list looking for Major Ramble, 562nd, Vietnam War. 
We'll see what happens. Let's get back to Essie. And someone read that article, and he says, I know him. He got in touch with Paco, and he says, I know him, and I know he lives in Colorado, but I don't know which city. And so that's what gave Paco the idea of, he looked in the phone book and he saw James Randall. And so he decided to call the number to see if this was the owner of the, the helmet. And it happened that he was with one call. He had called the person that, it, that the helmet belonged to. Friday night, I told my son, I said, I have to check my laptop, see if I've gotten any information. Sure enough, there was a letter, an email, from a retired Lieutenant Colonel Wilfred Plunkett stating, I was the, I believe it was, he was the avionics officer with that fighter squadron, and he said, the man you're looking for is alive and well and living in Colorado Springs. I went, bingo. He gave me his first name, middle initial, so immediately I went to the phone book and uh, found James and Essie Randall. I'm quite nervous. I, as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm shaken. Made a phone call Friday night there, and a lady answered the phone, turned out to be Essie, his wife, and she said, hello. I said, is this the residence of uh, Major Randall? Yes. Who's calling? When the call came in and I answered it, and I saw that it was from Lincoln, Nebraska, and I took the phone to Jim, he asked for Jim, and I took the phone to him and I said, somebody's calling, asking for you, and they're calling from Lincoln, Nebraska. And Jim said, I don't know anybody in Lincoln, Nebraska. I said, well, I don't either. But he took the call and when he called that night, he asked him questions about the helmet. Were you ever in this outfit? Were you in Vietnam? I said, uh, Colonel Randall, are you in the Vietnam War? He said, yes, I was. I said, were you a pilot of an F-105 and shot down in North Vietnam? And there was a pause. He said, who did you say this was? And I told him again. As he asked more questions, Jim got more excited because he knew it was his helmet. I said, I got information that you were shot down October 13th, 1965. I said, I've got something that I believe belongs to you. I've got your flight helmet. And there was a long, long pause. I thought he'd hung up on. But then, in response, you've got my what? And Paco said, well... I'm leaving early in the morning, uh, my wife and I are going fishing, so it have to be pretty early. And Jim says, I don't care how early it is, I just want to meet you. I said, why don't you just come over to my son's house tomorrow morning for, for coffee? And uh, he said, I'll be there at 8 o'clock. Needless to say, neither one of us slept that night with the anticipation of uh, meeting each other the next morning. When I told him my son's address, he said, oh, my God, that's one mile from my house. The luck is going our way. Of course, my son and grandson were in the driveway, and the, the colonel walks up, 
and it started off with a handshake. And then it turned into a long, long hug. We went in the house. Colonel Randall was spilling his coffee when I'm telling them the story. He said, where's the helmet? I said, it's with the man that purchased it at a Saigon flea market 20-some years ago. Jim asked him if he could contact Dominique, who was the person who had, had bought the helmet. He said, could you get in touch with him and have him um, email a, a picture of the helmet? I shot Dominique near the email and told Dominique, I said, send a picture of the helmet. Ten minutes, I turned the computer around and I said, uh, here it is. Dominique sent the, the email and Jim said, yes, that is my helmet. And he was just so excited that he was going to be connected to his helmet again. Colonel Randolph threw his arms in the air. That's my helmet he says. And there was just jubilation. He was so, so excited. Wow, that's, that's really interesting. Why was returning the helmet so important to you? After I done the research with 562nd Tactical Fighter Squadron and got a piece of the story, hey, it's no longer just a name on the helmet. It's, it's a person here. So this is why it was so important to follow up and, and research and uh, able to return it to Colonel Randall. Well, you know, to get a helmet back after being ejected from an airplane, you know, it's part of your memorabilia and also it's important to a pilot. As a fighter pilot in the Air Force for 30 years, I know what that means. I, you know, it protects you from not only noise but also it is how you communicate, it how you breathe your, you know, you use your oxygen mask connected to your helmet. It becomes a part of you. You know, it's an important uh, part of you being a fighter pilot and how it fits and, and it's important things to be able to remember. But I just can imagine what it felt like to get that back, especially after going such through uh, such a traumatic experience of being ejected and then having it taken away uh, by... Uh, the, the people on the ground at the time, and then to get it back. And you had an idea what, what that day meant to him as an individual, as a pilot, as a fighter pilot, and somebody in the combat zone. So pretty impressive on that end of it. So thanks for that. What can we learn about history and friendship, really, from this journey of returning the helmet? We created quite a friendship before the uh, Tuskegee reunion. At that Tuskegee reunion in St. Louis in August of 2013, as a guest of Colonel Randall's, I spent a lot of time with, with the colonel at tables with him and his friends, a, a magnificent bunch of guys. The colonel probably uh, summed it up when I presented the helmet to him on a platform stage there. He took that helmet and he became quite emotional, as you could imagine. And he looked that helmet over and he said to the crowd, he said, the best thing that I can see that's coming from this is the friendship. He said, I just gained two good friends. And I think that sums it up. And that's the way it was then from then on. The friendship that, that formed, you know, between the three of us, 
you know, the Frenchman living in Cambodia, you know, the uh, NGO worker from working with the indigenous people in Mandalakiti province to Colonel Randall living in Colorado Springs. It's amazing the way the story all came together and the friendship, the friendship that was formed. And I was, uh, I was quite, quite, quite grateful that I was able to speak at his funeral uh, in December of 2019. He was, he was a, a great, great friend and always will be. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, part of this story is preserving history, and that's what this is allowing us to do today, to tell the story and sharing with the next generation. So uh, what's the plans for the helmet now? What's the future for this wonderful artifact that joins so many people together? Well, right now, it's in Washington, D.C., and it now is being presented to the committee who decides what they will take and display in the museum. And I also donated his medals, all of his military medals. I don't want to just have it on the wall where nobody, just few, the people that come to my house is going to see it. But I think it's a worthwhile story and, and people need to know about it. Wow, that's quite a circle. Well, Essie and Roberta, thank you for sharing that. And, you know, we're always excited about telling stories about people and experiences, particularly around aviation. And the fact that you both have taken the time to do this and help share the story about your father and Essie, your husband, and uh, what that all meant to you and what it can meant to, and again, to future generations. So thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Essie Randall, Roberta Rollins, Gary Paco Gregg, and Chuck Stout for joining us. That was really cool. I loved the whole notion that Roberta spent so many years of her life not knowing her father's story. You know, over my years of, of collecting stories from veterans, John, when I was on the radio, it wasn't unusual to have kids say, I had no idea my, my mom or my dad did that. And this was just another example of that and how important it is for us to share our stories. What, what was your takeaway? Well, it was real personal for me because as a fighter pilot in the Air Force, having flown in combat, you know, I never had to eject, thank goodness. But to see what can happen when just one artifact can be connected to a family back again and how many people it touches, not only the ones that found it and rejoined it with Colonel Randall and the effect it had on the family, but all of the effects on the Tuskegee Airmen that they had on their event that they celebrated and that people had tears in their eyes. I mean, it's an amazing way where one piece of history can connect so many people in such a wonderful way. And, it, and a reminder for us all, and maybe younger generations who listen to us, John, in particular, if you've got dads or moms stuff from their military service, maybe ask around and see if there's some historical significance to it before you just take it to, to Goodwill or to the you know, thrift store and get rid of it. It might have some, have some truer meaning that you never really understood. 
All right, that's going to do it, folks, for episode 16 of the Behind the Wings podcast. Thank you for listening, and be sure to visit wingsmuseum.org slash podcast to join the conversation and access the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode of Behind the Wings. Have a, head over to iTunes or wherever you listen to subscribe and leave a review. Uh, we may even read your review on an episode. Apparently, that's the thing we're doing now. But really, it helps us a lot, and we appreciate it. And by the way, we'll see you next time on Behind the Wings.